Larry Williams has been at the top of his game for over 30 years. After honing his skills as a student at the Indiana University School of Music, Larry transplanted himself to the tropics in Hawaii and became one of the founding members of Seawind. As a Grammy-nominated producer, composer, arranger, and multi-instrumentalist, Larry is a non-stop music machine that doesn't seem to be slowing. Although he doesn't subscribe to segmenting music by genres, listening to his music will show you how versatile he really is. He's a top keyboard, sax, flute, and clarinet player who does multi-duty when called upon. From his work with Dave Grusin, George Benson, Al Jarreau, Herbie Hancock, Patrice Ruchin, Marcus Miller, Vinnie Caluda, Patty Austin, and Paul McCartney, Williams has nothing left to prove. Inside Music Cast welcomes Larry Williams. Hey, Larry, thanks for hanging out with Eddie and me today. My pleasure, guys. <laughs> Great to be here. Good. Hey, it's also nice to welcome another Midwest type of guy that's sort of connected yeah. back to Indiana. Yeah. And, uh, and in fact, tell us about that connection. You actually studied at uh, Indiana University, right? Sure did. Yeah. Um, Midwest guy, grew yeah. up in Kansas City, yeah. Overland Park to be exact, had right. the same teacher as Pat Matheny, wow. who was in Lee Summit, Missouri. Okay. Uh, interesting connection. Yeah. I played with, with Pat's brother, Mike, mm-hmm. who's a great trumpet player, teaches at Berkeley School of Music. Growing up right. in the Kansas City Youth Symphony, my older brother, Ron, who's a saxophone piano player as well, played with Pat. Pat played with my dad, who's a saxophone player. His first gig on bass at, at a county fair in somewhere Kansas or Missouri. I'm not really even sure when he was 16, I think my dad said. He played it. And he played great bass then. So yeah. anyway, that that's the Kansas City connection. Um, I ended up going to um, New Mexico State University for one year on a scholarship and mm-hmm. met some professors who were going up to Indiana. And they said, "You got to go up to Indiana. You're you know you're outgrowing this place." And uh, <laughs> I they got me. I got a full academic music scholarship there on woodwinds, and I was playing piano in one of the bands and. Uh, lead alto and tenor in, in the first band. Uh, not lead alto. I played tenor in the first band, David Baker's band. Yeah. Oh, okay. That was, uh, I'd studied with just incredible teachers on woodwinds. Yeah. Um, you know, my first chair Philharmonic, ex New York Philharmonic, uh, Bernard Portnoy was my clarinet teacher, and e- Eugene wow. Rousseau was my saxophone teacher, and, uh, and I had a piano teacher as well, and it just, you know, the guys that I met there, of course, Jerry Hay, Kim Hutchcroft, mm-hmm. which became Sea Wind Horns. Sure. Uh, Peter Erskine, Alan Pasqua, guys I still do sessions with today and uh, see and hear, you know, all, all over the place. So it was it was an amazing place to, to study. Very fortunate to be there at that time. Um, and I, I think it had a lot to do with it. You know, formulating the the, mu- the musician I, I became. Michael Brecker had been there uh, before me, but I heard tapes of him playing in a practice room. Did and, you really? Uh, I, wow. I did. One of the first things that happened, guy I was hanging out with in the first month I was there, said, you got to listen to this. Uh, hmm. I was working in the tape library as part of my scholarship, so I had access to all the concerts that had been given in Indiana. Uh-huh. So I would sit in there and listen to these things, and he said, check out... This is Michael in a practice room with the bass player, with no bass player, a piano player and a drummer, playing Doxy for about ten minutes. <laughs> and I went. I literally put all my instruments away for about two weeks 
and and thought about whether I wanted to play <laughs> continual career in music because he yeah. was fully realized on the saxophone at that point, and wow. it was just I'd never heard anything like it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really, and at that point, I thought I was going to be the greatest saxophone player that had ever lived, <laughs> and I went. I could practice a long time, and I don't know that I'll get this level that he had re- achieved. So the the turning point, it was actually a turning point in my career. I decided at that particular time, I was 19, first year at Indiana, to um, become really good on a lot of instruments and find my own voice. That would be my thing, mm-hmm. studying five woodwinds and keyboards at that point, piano. and So that, that was very formative for me and very yeah. fortunate because it's uh it's really it's been really good good for me in just in music you know always my dad always said everyone always needs a great piano player yeah. good piano player even yeah um and that's worked out real good when there were 10 horn players lined up to play solos i could go play piano and yeah yeah i'd have to comp but at least i was playing the whole time right, right. <laughs> <laughs> you're right well, the, you know, the Indiana University School of Music is, is excellent. I mean, I'd, I'd venture to guess it's one of the probably top ten music schools in the country. Yeah. Well, I think it's closer in the top five, at least Maybe at that so. time I was there. Yeah. I mean, it was really Berkeley, uh, North Texas, mm-hmm. Juilliard, mm-hmm. Miami, mm-hmm. Miami, you know, Indiana. Mm-hmm. So I, I think today it's hard to say because there are quite a few good music schools, but it, mm-hmm. it's certainly... Well, it was the largest at that particular time. We had 12 full-time orchestras, mm-hmm. uh, and it was built around opera. The opera season is longer than the Met, um, <laughs> and, and then they get a huge funding from, um, from the donors who you know, support it like other big universities support their, right. their band, their football band program. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Indiana has that as well, but the, the other arts, that because of the opera and the orchestras and the, then the jazz band get get a lot of funding. So I mean, there were 150 teachers. Yeah, you know, it was just wow. an amazing environment to be in. I mean, suddenly I was like, "Wow, this is I'm I'm no longer big fish in a small pond." I'm like, yeah. got people from Russia and China and Japan. Right, right. So, oh, yeah. 1968. So it was it was pretty pretty incredible experience. Um, you know, and I was thinking about some of the great jazz players that have come out of there, you know, and, and, you know, names like yourself, Jerry Hay, we mentioned earlier, we, you know, you mentioned David Baker, who's, you know, now, uh, you know, professor down there and, and also, you know, Chris Bodie. Chris, Chris yeah. was there as well. I've, I've talked to Chris and worked with him a few times since, uh-huh. since then. Uh, Kenny Aronoff, great right, drummer, right, yeah. on everybody, mm-hmm. was there, studied with Gabriel, uh, Peter Erskine, Alan Pasquale. Yep. There's, uh, there's, I mean, Freddie Hubbard's an uh, Indianapolis guy. Wes yeah. Montgomery. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of guys in the in the area too in Indianapolis because I used to go up and. I mean, part of my thing was, I was studying classical music, playing the jazz band, but my passion was jazz. And then, then I heard James Brown, and I wanted to learn how to play that too because wow. I was kind of a snob going in. Yeah. Just, uh, yeah. Not not much. Listening to popular music, I was really jazz or classical, and and uh, started really hearing great funk stuff, and heard what Michael Brecker was doing with Dreams and mm-hmm. Billy Cobham. Mm-hmm. Of course, that was an amazing fusion. Got into all those the horn bands back then. Right. So 
I would go up to Indianapolis and hear people play up there. I mean, you know, great Joe Henderson came through and yeah. <laughs> just, you know, a lot of my idols. Um, I also had a little gig up there with the Indianapolis Symphony playing yeah. Utility Woodwind. So, <laughs> so they'd hire Utility me for concerts. I play saxophone in uh, a Bizet, or I think we did Kurt Files, Trichetti uh-huh. Opera. Yeah. Uh, played piccolo on a Luciano Berio that's out, you know, very avant-garde composer. Some really interesting things, and got my feet wet up there, and also got hired. Um, Jerry and I both got hired by um, for these orchestras that were traveling around behind Henry Mancini, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, Johnny Mathis, Andy Williams, oh. uh, Glenn Campbell. I mean, really <laughs> big pop artists that hired orchestras from Indiana University and Illinois University. And right, right. We we went on the road, you know. My yeah. classical composed uh, teachers weren't too thrilled with it, and in fact, <laughs> kind of led to a little premature parting. Um, they were kind of there was one flute teacher that was really stiff and didn't wanted me. Just thought everyone should just if they weren't going to play in an orchestra that they were, you know, kind of worthless. And he was sort of blocking my. I was transitioning from clarinet major to flute major, and he was sort of blocking that move. So I, I ended up, after two years, leaving school and uh, moving to Hawaii. I had a full-time gig there, a six-night-a-week yeah. gig, yep. with Jerry Hay and a bunch of the guys that <clears throat> from Indiana. Yeah. And uh, that's how Sealand was, was born. So. Did, did they leave also prematurely or not? Uh, almost all of them. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is yes. There's only there's one guy that... Uh, in our group, Larry Hall, who's back playing with Seawind, who was an original member of Seawind with Jerry Hay, um, who got his degree. <laughs> the joke, <laughs> joke is, how's that degree uh, working out for you in the studios? <laughs> they, you know, they asked us. <laughs> it, you know, it's, my wife is, is jokes about it. It's like I make fun of it that I'm, you know, I'm. I don't know, 15 credits short of a degree. Like, <laughs> Aren't we all? You know, really, what, what's, in what we do, you know, it's so, you know, I've, UCLA called me to, to teach over there at the, um, the extension program, and I said, you know, I don't have a degree. They said, well, we don't care. We, we look at your resume, and, uh, you know, it's, I think it's probably one of the few things where I, where I tell kids, yeah, you know, if you're really going to go for it, you know, I, and at the time, I don't. I wonder if this is the same today. They, they really tried to push me into music education. Yeah. They didn't want people to just be in performance. And I said, mm-hmm. you know, I ain't going to study teaching. I'm here to play, and, and that's what I'm going to do. And, you know, I took all the performance things, and I have all the educational courses, whatever it's left. I was only on a performance degree, so it's it's pretty pretty funny because they they just figure you're gonna have to fall back and teach mm-hmm. <laughs> no matter what i mean even in even in the late 60s early 70s that mm-hmm. was the prevailing thing well and you think about it there's only how many orchestra jobs open up every year for you're, people you're right, right. I mean, it's not very many on in the major symphonies so right right I, I i never looked back as um i've thought about getting a degree and i just go I, I, i'd rather go back and uh you know, do some master classes, and actually, which I'm starting to do these days. Al, Al Drew and I do that. Pretty cool. When we're mm-hmm. on tour, we we'll 
we just did one at Marshall University last year, and uh, mm-hmm. you know he's he's actually a big proponent of of literacy and and, and teaching, and um, we both started doing some mentorship stuff, you know, mm-hmm. locally here in L.A. and um, yeah, that's that's more my way of giving back, you know. <laughs> uh-huh. So. Well, we were talking, I, I won't stay on it, the topic of Indiana and Indianapolis too much more, but I, I did want to say that, you know, when it comes to jazz, you know, there's some places around the country, like New Orleans, of course, and, and maybe, uh, you know, maybe Kansas City or some other places where you think about jazz sort of, you know, comes to the forefront. But Indianapolis at one point was really a mecca for jazz. And, and you know, you, you mentioned Wes Montgomery's name and Freddie Hubbard's name. And, uh, you know, there were some other just great players that came out of here. And it was really, at one point, uh, a place where jazzers came to play and to learn. Absolutely. As, as was Chicago and yeah. Kansas City, where my dad grew up. I mean, my dad heard Charlie Parker, who's obviously played with him. Mm-hmm. He was just another alto player who couldn't read, is what my dad said. And then he came <laughs> back through town. And they all, all the saxophone players went to the Newbach Hotel to hear Charlie Parker. Mm-hmm. And my dad said they had no idea what he was doing. Jeez. Like, is it good? We think it's good, <laughs> but we don't. We can't tell what he's doing. It so was, you know, the the language when he was playing the extensions, the chordal extensions was just. So I mean, you know, Kansas City has has got a pretty incredible tradition as well. Yeah. It, it, right. All those bands, those touring bands, and my dad used to do a lot of those, those circuits. I mean, he, he would he would play on Woody Herman's band for a minute for, to sub for guys, and but he couldn't go because he had a family. He couldn't really stay out on the road any, any longer, so he was kind of the tenor player in town. But yeah, yeah, the Midwest is really a fertile ground for yeah, especially in the time you know. I think before well, when I was really young. Obviously, but it's a lot of that retained through. I mean, there were a lot of places to go play and, mm-hmm. and to jam mm-hmm. you know, that don't really exist probably much anymore. It's pretty pretty pared down from from that. But great place to grow up. I, mean, I, I really have a huge affinity for people from the Midwest, even out here in LA. I mean, I'm, I still feel like I'm a Midwesterner. I've been here thirty six years, but mm-hmm. still feel like I'm from the Midwest. So. Yeah. <laughs> Had a lot to do with 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 the kind of musician and person I became. I really believe that the roots are uh, yeah. mm-hmm. solid yep. there.
So you ended up in Hawaii. I mean, what a place for a gig. Jeez, you know. <laughs> Everybody you know, would. Someone says, hey, <laughs> some of your best friends say, you know, you want to, you know, I, I really was leaving school, didn't have any other plans. And the guys, <laughs> my best friends who, who I'm stuck playing music with at school, they kind of left one by one, said, hey, we got a gig for you as soon as you get off the plane. Got a house here for you in Hawaii. Why don't you come? You know, check it out. Well, why not? I mean, yeah, really. What else are you going to do? (laughs) You got to go check it out when you're 21. Oh, of course. We get to Waikiki, and and it turns out that there's a bunch of guys from Indiana and some local guys that can all really play. We're all listening to the same stuff: the classics, Coltrane, Bird. You know, now we're listening to Herbie Hancock and all the the funk rock bands, and we start playing shows behind guys, and uh, the after hours and before hours playing we did at the, at the house turned into to BC Wind, you know? Yeah. Meet the drummer, Bob Wilson, who's living there after the, his stint in the Navy. Ken Wilde grows up there, the bass player. Paul, We find Pauline on the, another island, on the third <laughs> island, checking in a club, and uh, we put this thing together. I mean, it's, you know, pretty... I don't know if it could happen like that exactly today. I, right. I guess it could. Sure. Um, we all lived in the house, and, uh, you know, we played top 40 music to, to kind of make it just to play together, you know? There wasn't... There was very little original music other than Hawaiiana being played in Hawaii. I mean, for the... Because it's <laughs> tourists there, right? And they want to come and they want to hear, you know, Tiny Bubbles and Don Ho, and we're... We're playing those shows and making a living and kind of frustrated with uh, the blue hairs from Ohio. And uh, we're, we're young, young and full of piss and vinegar and think we know everything. And uh, But it, it was it was also the kind of a thing where, you know, you see all kinds of acts come through. And, and because we had hooked up with this, this one... Uh, a booking agent who whose his name was Harvey Ragsdale and mm-hmm. he was a bass player with Martin Denny on the on the quiet you know this famous Hawaiian track quiet it's a tiki lounge theme I can't think of the title it's very very famous Hawaiian thing in the fifties so he was a real lover of musicians and was thrilled to have these young guys that could read and and you know we'd back up Tony Bennett Mel Torme. We at that point I was mostly playing lead alto mm-hmm. in the band and Jerry and uh, then Gary Grant, the trumpet player, moves sure. over there. Yeah. And, well, we've got this amazing horn section and Bob and Kenny and it, it was pretty, you know, it was great because because we were doing some really great people. Sammy Davis, we did his show and Bob Hope comes in and and I'm his musical director for a night at the at the HIC right. theater. I mean. 21 to kill you, it was just invaluable. You know, mm-hmm. I'm going in there going, Mr. Hope, I, I don't know, you know what it is you need. <laughs> if I can provide, he says, just, just, you, can, you can play Thanks for the Memories, right? And I said, yeah. He said, just wave your arms around and play that. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I mean, it was pretty, pretty amazing, you know, and the kind of experience that uh, we got real world playing with people. And, uh, you know, we had decided to stay together that we would just... We would um, we would start we'd go on this little tour to Alaska and over over to the mainland and play in top forty clubs and sure. and that didn't go all that well because we're trying to play Frank Zappa tunes and push the envelope and you know 
they, were, they wanted pretty down the middle. Uh, you know, we did the Aretha Franklin and stuff like that, some mm-hmm. straight ahead stuff, but we were really listening to more of, oh, Tower of Power and, you know, the hipper yeah. jazz rock kind of stuff. And it, it, it was getting, after a couple of years of that and just... Right. Just kind of scraping around, we we finally decided. Well, well we're just going to do it on our own original material, and, yeah. and that that was a it was a difficult choice because there wasn't that many there weren't that many places to play. Right. But uh, we la- ended up landing in Phoenix, and uh, then moved back to Hawaii with with uh, this kind of original sound that that was you know an amalgam of everything we were listening to: Miles, right. Chick Corea, mm-hmm. all the funk stuff, Shaka, and Tower and that that became Sea Wind. I mean, at one time you guys really had a real funky uh, list. That I mean, that stuff. It, it's you're right. It sounded just like Rufus. I mean, I mean, not just like them, but it had that feel. I mean, you guys were doing really funky stuff, and Pauline was leading it with the vocals. I mean, uh, I mean, that's that was the product of what you were listening to, correct? Well, certainly. Yeah. And we we were listening to and and really loved that equally with. You know, pretty, like I say, certainly all the contemporary jazz stuff, but, but I mean, I was always, Bob and I would go in a room and when we could do anything, like we were in, in Hawaii for six months playing with this guy, and it was just Bob and I, it was, the show was really pretty B-flat, lame. <laughs> We'd go in a room and play uh, impressions, just drums and tenor for two hours, you know, and just just try to push the envelope there and see see what what that was we were really exploring a lot of different avenues there but when we got to and and we did that with sea wind you know that was yeah. part of what that what that we would just start out in the key and play like a you know like miles live evil type and see where it developed yeah, right and, um Kind of tried to trying to pull it all together, and that was really the first Sea Wind record. It had a lot of instrument, about half instrumental, half vocal. Of course, inevitably, the record company, which is CTI, all of them anyway, kept pushing you us towards be more like, well, yeah, I know what you mean. Chaka or Tower, just straight down the middle. You know, take the edges off of it and um, make it sellable. Make it just make it fit in a bin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> and, and we never did really fit in a bin and that that was you know, it was sort of us bridling against the music industry. And that that's sort of been a theme throughout the you know, how do how do we fit into it? Yeah. And uh, and keep really keep true to who we are, you know, as later on as it became you know, yeah. even even wider range from Brazilian to Latin tinge things. Us exploring, you know, it's always our take on it. We never t- tried to be slumming in anything, but but just 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 a natural progression of the stuff we love to listen to. It just became absorbed in the music, and sure. that I mean that's how you grow as a musician. You know? Yeah, that was the the progression of, of Sea Wind. Yeah, yeah. Um, then we moved, you know, we moved to, to L.A. and in '75. And Harvey Mason ended up getting that record deal for CTI. We started playing the baked potato, and all all that stuff is, uh, yeah. you know, was a very great time in music. The, the session studios were were going wild, and um, we found our way into that from from Sea Wind. I mean, it's hard to say how that would have worked without Sea Wind as a forum for for any of us. I mean, I'm quite sure 
Jerry Hay would have would have been arranging horns and you know without sea wind, but that was the forum that that Quincy heard us with with sea wind and. 1978 on, pretty much every record Quincy did, you know, was was Jerry and the Sea Wind Horns. And Jeez, yeah. mm-hmm. Every beat of my heart cries for you. Every breath that I take whispers your name. Every thought, every dream. a picture of your grace every part of my soul longs for you the touch of your hand your loving embrace every word that you speak to me is the measure of your love and i You know, you talk a, lot, a little bit about uh, the horns and, and when you hooked up with Quincy. What's the capacity when you're working with Quincy Jones and you're doing tons of session work with him? Um, are you arranging for him? Is he arranging? Do you guys collaborate together with him? And Or was it a, a hybrid of, of how you work with him on a session? Well, we saw early on the way Quincy, you know, there's, there's a lot of different, uh, I've heard other people's experiences, mm-hmm. um, most of us, most of the guys that I know that, that spent, worked on all those, you know, the Michael Jackson records and the Quincy, the dude, and all these formative ones that, look, at the guy had a, you know, 25-year career before we got involved. So, I mean, he's, you know, going back to Lionel Hampton's band. And, sure, sure. I mean, amazing, amazing stuff. Um, to, to everything we heard was... Look, our experience was so great because Quincy provided this amazing atmosphere. It was always like a party, except totally focused on the music. And mm-hmm. it's so it's even hard to explain because it sounds like, well, you were just having fun in there. Well, yeah, except we were dead serious about the music. And a lot of the times, we didn't leave the studio for, you know... 20 hours. I mean, there were more than a couple of times, especially with synthesizer stuff later on, where we stayed there three or four days in a row doing synthesizers on stuff. And it really was was just, the work was so much fun. And Quincy, I mean, Quincy would be, be, be there directing it, and the leader of Russia would stop by. I mean, you know, he would have Nelson Mandela would come in. Superman, Naomi Campbell would walk in the door. You know, just anybody would show up there, and you're going, okay, uh, you know, 
Yeah. We kept on, we said hello, we'd meet these people and keep on working, and they just kind of hang out, and sure. it was just, it, it's hard to, to, it really wasn't even a distraction. It was just like, this is Quincy's world, right. and he kept it so focused, yet so light um, of mood that you just you just wanted to be there doing it. Yeah. The music was so great, the artists were always great. Yeah. Quincy could sit down and write, make no changes. Saw him do it a few times. Jerry and I have had a lot of Jerry Hay and I have had a lot of discussions about this. Just what what is the depth of Quincy's knowledge? And we both think it's really deep. Mm-hmm. He cho- he chose from the time we were there to not to let us do most of that. Mm-hmm. Make the choices. I mean, Quincy would make his feelings known. Never held back, but. Uh, the best example of, I mean, arranging, you know, he those that's Jerry's notes. Quincy would tell him about voicings occasionally that he would want to hear or, yeah. and or change. Sure. But he really put a lot of trust in Jerry Hay as an arranger. Um, the, the story that I can, that comes to mind, um, this is a couple of years into doing horn stuff with Quincy. I mean, I think we did The Wiz. With Michael Jackson, "Ease on Down the Road" was one. It was the first record we do with Michael. Hmm. Before "Off the Wall," Quincy was doing the Brothers Johnson "Blam." Yeah, we had done his. I had. I heard that record. Uh, he he was using George Duke usually to mm-hmm. play synthesizers, sure. solo type things. George was unavailable. He was on the road, I believe, and and he called up Jerry and said, "Who should I get?" And Jerry said, "Get Larry." And he said, "Well, Larry plays saxophone. He yeah, he plays." <laughs> Jerry said, trust me, get him. Yeah. So Quincy calls me. I'm going to, I go down there, and I'm thinking, Quincy's going to tell me how to play synthesizer on a pop-funk record, right? It's the Brothers Johnson plan. <laughs> and, and, you know, I mean, I'm thinking, I'm, thinking my, my, I'm going to learn everything about that there is about recording from Quincy. And it's kind of true, I did. And, and basically, he, he said, listen to the track, play what you feel, and... You know, he would make a tiny, subtle comment about the sound, you know, maybe less filter here or something like that. But basically, he just inspired me to get the best out of me. And that's that's the greatest producer in the world. That's why Quincy is the greatest producer. I think pretty much everybody that works for him will tell you that. He, he's just, it's so inspirational to be around him. He doesn't have to say a lot of nuts and bolts. He's going to get the best you there is. Yeah. And you want to give your all to somebody like that. First of all, the music's great. He's a tremendous person. You're learning about life and music. He's paying you triple scale. <laughs> you know, he gave me a part of a tune, for, for, of the Brothers Johnson tune for a part I played, which I thought, well, that's going to happen. That's how easy is that? Yeah, I'm really. Do that for the rest of my career. It was the only time it ever happened. <laughs> One time, right there. One time. So you know, it's it's almost mysterious yeah. when you when you talk about music production because there's guys that are totally hands on and do everything from all the notes to the hiring everybody to. I mean, it can it can, it, it can mean anything. Music yeah. production. Yeah, sure. When I look at Quincy, it's almost magical. Yeah. Um, yeah. And a lot of it is just the force of his personality and who he is. Yeah. And people ha- have so much respect going in, and it's not just reputation. Eh? He does really know what's going on. And, uh, 
you know, I'm very blessed to have been able to make a lot of records with Quincy, and and uh, you know, I just think he he pulls the best out of people. And that's how we always felt. Yeah. And you know, Jerry was really his right hand guy for notes yeah. for for pulling a track together. You know, pretty much rhythm section and certainly any horn stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, and a lot of synth stuff was Jerry would sketch out stuff and I'd come in and sound design it and you know that I, I did some arranging with it with, with him certainly with Quincy but Jerry is his right hand guy sure. still to this day but Quincy's not that active let me switch gears and I want to uh, hop, hop over to another composer that you've worked with and that's uh, well Dave Grusin and Larry from GRP oh. how did uh, I mean I, I you know I've always you know go back if I want to refresh my mind on, on some neat performances and I always go back and do this occasionally you know I, um, I this is past week uh, knowing that we were going to talk to you I went back and I just listened to the performance uh, it's it's uh, uh, where you're performing with um, uh, Dave and uh, gee whiz Carlos Vega Abel Boreal Lee Rittenauer and I think you're doing some work um, uh, I think is that from the from the Mountain Dance album yeah, and yeah, uh, there it, is. it's a great session. And um, uh, tell me a little bit about your association with Dave. It's neat, neat, neat stuff. Well, I, you know, it pretty much um, it came out of that time at the baked potato I was talking about when we first got to town. Um, I guess I don't know who we met first, whether it was Lee Rittenauer or Dave Grusin, but mm-hmm. it was. I think it was probably Lee. Um, we ended up. And I just from hanging out at the potato and Lee hearing us started playing with Lee and I would be playing tenor on Lee's gig and usually it would be Patrice Russian or Dave Grusin. So I think over the course of a year or so, and Abraham would be playing bass, Abraham Laborio and uh either Carlos could have been Jeff McCarl at times. But yeah. uh so that Baked Potato, just Lee's gigs was where I met Dave. And funny, I had Dave's first solo trio, his trio record when Dave must have been 25 years old, when I was 12, and used to listen to it. <laughs> and he was known as, he was a movie composer then, of course, mm-hmm. so obviously one of the greatest ever. Mm-hmm. But it was a really good trio record that he made and I knew he could play I had no idea he could play the way he can play until I got to sit down there and play the baked potato with him we developed a a pretty nice uh, musical relationship and I loved his sense of humor too Uh, and you know I was in awe of his his movie scoring ability and Dave hired me to play woodwinds and synthesizer on quite a few projects um you know movie and otherwise uh when grp got up and rolling um you know i I know he hired the horn section and i remember doing some diane sure stuff and he would hire me to do programming synth programming and he Mm -hmm. would a lot of times play when we were doing strings and stuff with you know electronic strings um that kind of thing and i i would just Talk about working with a master arranger, orchestrator, and, and writer as well. Yeah. And one of the nicest, funniest guys you'd ever meet, too. Funny, funny. 
dry sense of humor, both he and Don Grusin. Yeah. So, you know, when, when we did that particular recording at Record Plant, you can't imagine how many people through the years all over the world have come up to me and said, I saw you on that. I heard that yeah. DVD. I think they played it at the old Federated store chain, Federated <laughs> um, Electronics yeah, store. Yeah, right, yeah. right. And that thing was in, was in all those stores, like playing, you know, DVD, mm. before DVDs. It was, you yeah. know, yeah, going the, way back. Yeah. It was audio first, and then it was... VHS tapes, right? And and then as GRP got got their high end audio thing, it they they played those in a lot of audiophile shops. So sure. it uh, it's just gotten widely disseminated all over the world. Yep. And it's it's really well done. I, I got to say, it's it's one of those things when I hear it, I still go, man, that still sounds very good. Uh, you know, and, and I don't say that about everything I've worked on <laughs> over yeah, the years. Right, yeah. But of course, it's. It's Dave and Carlos and Abraham and Lee and, you know, some yeah. of those. It was Dave Valentine, um, yeah, exactly. Diane Shore, and Yvonne Linz, who I met yes. through that and ended up producing wow. later. So, wow. Uh, look, Dave is one of my all-time favorite guys and favorite musicians, vastly underrated as a, as a piano player. But as a musical mind, all of us know he's, he's one of the most brilliant guys um, that that have that have worked in in popular music he really really is you mentioned uh, a name that popped up a minute ago was Carlos Vega and he was he was such an excellent drummer and you know and, and in many ways he was he, you know he was definitely in that same league with the guys like Jeff Percaro and Steve Gadd and Alex Acuna and can you can you tell us any stories or experiences working with Carlos there's a few I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> we want to we want to hear the ones you can't. Yeah, the ones you can't. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh man, I'm gonna have to edit. You guys did have to edit too, too much of us. Trust <laughs> us. Trust us. Uh, Rick's we, a great editor. Just, <laughs> for those people who know Carlos, there's there's not much needs to be said about. But what a, a wonderful, hysterically funny guy he was, and and you know humble in in the in the way that this guy he loved music so much he took music and drumming and being a great musician he was much more of a musician than a drummer i always considered him because the way he listened to music he turned me on to a lot of music and and it just it blew me away yeah that that he was a musician first he wasn't a drummer Uh, he he didn't like playing drum solos he and Bob Wilson have a lot in common because they play the song, yeah. don't play the drums. That's and cool. That's cool. A lot of drummers need to um, <laughs> need well, to do that. Uh, oh, Jeff Percaro. Jeff Percaro was the same way. You know, there you he, go. There's there's, there's the there's original. Who, it's not about any of the technical stuff. Right. It's about total feel. Right. Right. And, and that's where Carlos came from, and and he idolized yeah. Jeff as as does did. Bob and we we still do all all musicians yeah. idolize Jeff. Yep. who are trying to play in popular music because just the same way as Steve Gadd and even Vinny, you you know the the separation of wh- the way they're able to play, put the time, and and where they're able to put 
the accents on the beat and, mm-hmm. and the amount of laid back feeling that they're able to bring to something or pushing slightly ahead. It's and how they use space and and space. Uh-huh. It's totally musical. It's it's all about the music and the feel, and mm-hmm. that's. That describes Jeff to a T, and it describes Carlos too. And yeah. you know, he he could he would make such fun of himself. I mean, we would <laughs> there were times where you just we were just be hysterically laughing. You know, just as you have to laugh on the road to get by. And, and a lot of times with Lee Rittenauer, it'd be he and I and Abraham and Lee, and just I think Carlos and I ended up hanging out a lot because we were on the same wavelength, um, just just in in everything we were listening to and been kind of life. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, the, the stories that... <laughs> there's, there's one incredible story that I will tell you about. Uh, you know, Abraham is... We, we all just think Abraham is the... He is the... Most beautiful man in the world, and he's, he's such a man of God. He walks the walk and walks the talk and talks the walk and right. does the whole thing. Can't beat his musicianship. He's the kindest, gentlest person. So one night we're all hanging out after a gig. Well, I say we're all. It's Carlos and I, as I remember. And Carlos way overdoes it. I, I know I did too. Next day we're on a flight to. Let's, we're in Cleveland, I believe, and we're on a plane at 6.30 in the morning, and it's packed. And Carlos is green, right? And he's, he's going to lose his <laughs> breakfast, which he hasn't even had. And, and he goes up to the front, right? For, so so Car- Carlos heaves into this bag, and he has this bag full <laughs> that he has to take up to the front of the plane, right? What are you sitting there? And, and the whole plane's looking at him. He's embarrassed to heck. And on the way back, you know, Abraham, who's the most non-judgmental person in the world, says, last night's party, too much fiesta. <laughs> like that. Is, for, for Abraham, that's like, that's like the most condemnation you could ever do. And Carlos just hang, hangs his head down and... I'm I'm dying laughing because because it's just the situation is funny. But Carlos, he, he recovered from that fight, and uh, I, I just to see Abraham's face. And if you know him, his, his, his lips are out. And oh, last night's fiesta. <laughs> That's his too, reprimand too for party. going too far. His reprimand for him too much his fiesta. Reprimand, which is you know so so the, that, those are stern words from Abraham. He's kind of shaking his head, but with much compassion too. You know, <laughs> that's funny. We we just had we had a great time. That's man. neat. We we really did miss hey, him dearly. Hey, let's get technical for a second. Okay. Uh, I, I've been a keyboardist for many years, and uh, and so I, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. A few minutes ago, you mentioned that when you were working with Quincy Jones that you did um, uh, a good amount of programming for him. Now, as any keyboardists know that during the 70s and 80s, it was like prime, you know, prime time for keyboards back then, you know, and, and obviously in the 70s, we had the analog, and then, of course, that transitioned over to the to the to the digital keyboards, but in the seventies, when we were talking about the Oberheims, the Moogs, how much actual um, programming? I mean, where'd you get your programming chops for for this? Because you know, I sat down with. I started in Hawaii 
early 70s with an ARP Odyssey, mm-hmm. uh, listening to George Duke, and I wanted to get that sound out of it, out of, you know, that solo sound, first of all. Right. Um, so I just sat down with one. I took some lessons from a local guy who was actually very good, started learning about about signal path and mm-hmm. uh, LFOs and the basics sure. of synthesis. So it was just fascinated by yeah. it. And I heard Jan Hammer had to get a mini Moog to try to duplicate that sound. Uh, when the Prophet 5 came out, that kind of changed, you know. I, I got one of the first ones, and just I just knew that that, that was a game changer yeah. for recording, because now we had polyphonic, yep. really paint a pretty wide palette polyphonically, and... Uh, progr- programmable, and you know you could save your patches, so you had a starting point. Sure. So the time factor got, you know, a lot less. And finally, I had something that people didn't say sounds like an organ all the time. You yeah. Know, you hear that? <laughs> exactly. That patch sounds like an organ. Yeah. You know, you know it's just voltage out of the wall. Sure it is. <laughs> yes, exactly. So much you can do with it here. Uh, I, I got to say, just just sitting. Hours in a room, yeah. uh, I would talk to other guys about how they're approaching it and listen, mm-hmm. try to emulate since. Yeah. Look, at my technical knowledge was certainly not anywhere near to where my musical uh-huh. ability was. Right. And, and what, what really, I think, separated me from some people was... Very rarely, and I still to this day, I won't ever play a synthesizer without a volume pedal. Mm-hmm. And I used to use filter pedals right. without a lot of control. Joe Zawinul told me when he came to Hawaii one time, I got to hang out with him, and he had an ARP 2600. Yeah. He said, look, it, it's just electricity voltage from the wall. Yep. you gotta, you got to use everything you can to shape that sound into something musical. Right. Otherwise... It, it might as well be a dial tone. <laughs> exactly, right. <laughs> Which is really true when you think about it. And mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff I didn't like was wide open filter, you know, just just somebody just hammering on something that was like obviously a piano player playing a synthesizer without musical shaping. Yeah. So that that had a lot to do with it when, sure. I, when I figured out envelopes and that, that, you know, you really have to play this thing as sure. a musical instrument. The oscillators and, it, and all that kind of, yeah. And if you're going to make, try to emulate strings, which which I got called a lot to do, right. you really have to be playing string parts. Mm-hmm. You can't be playing keyboard parts. Sure. They have to be, if you want to sound like strings, or if you yeah. want to sound like an oboe, you've got to play like basically in yeah. the ranges and you have to play with the kind of shaping that real musicians do and that i think that's one of my better strengths is is learning that early on yeah. that not just emulating but it makes you know that's why what makes it musical right technically you know, i just got in and twisted the knobs until it yeah. sounded right <laughs> and and i would make notes of of the of the things that i liked as I was doing it. So, yeah. yeah. I, you know, I can imagine that you're even, you, well, it has to be, that your classical training and exposure to strings and orchestral music, I mean, that must have been a, a, a such a neat, uh, you know, training ground for you, even as you were approaching programming uh, string oh, parts on the art. Absolutely. You know? No question about it. And having, 
you know, having a musical mind like Jerry Hayes, yeah. ears like his, who, you know, I mean, literally, you can fall on the piano and Jerry can write the notes down. Right? Yeah, yeah. I don't have those kind of ears. I can get there, but, you know, immediate, you know, perfect pitch and tremendous tonal recall. Just, uh, you know, basically, if he hears it, kind of Greg Fillingane's the same way. He hears it once. He remembers it and can play it. So having that kind of library type mind, I mean, I would use Jerry a lot for yeah. voicings and what what is this here? Yeah, yeah what, exactly. What, why why does that sound so good? What what is it that that that, that stack of fourths and then a triad mm-hmm. on the top or the bottom makes makes that You're right, resonate yeah. so well? Sure. And it has to do with overtones, but it also it just is. You just learn that it is mm-hmm. a great voicing for right. strings or piano or a lot. A lot of instruments sound great with this voicing. Right, you know, mm-hmm. exactly. Just, just actually even start learning about voicings because I learned to play the piano. I mean, I fortunately had this same teacher, John Elliott from Kansas City, that Pat Messini. I talked about him. This guy opened me up to the fact that you could play, take an E minor chord. And spread it out with a tenth on the bottom, mm-hmm. right? And move the ninth up an octave and a half, and sure. you know, put the the seventh in a different place, and and you change that up, and it totally changes the color of a, the same You're chord. Right. It's yeah. beautiful, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's that endless possibility of voicing and arranging is what I mean. It when I saw the possibilities, I went. Holy cow! Yeah, Not it's... only is this endless, I'm never going to learn all this. Yeah. <laughs> which is, which yeah. is true. I never am. <laughs> but like you, like you said, those type of voicings are what makes the the string arrangements, uh, the string, so much richer and beautiful. It's those added notes, you know. Well, and then and that's how you also develop your signature when you mm-hmm. hear a Klaus Ogerman, yeah, or you hear, you know, Don Sebesky or any of the great arrangers. Those guys. That the way that they stack their voicings or not in the amount of space. Um, one of the records I worked on, Cityscapes with Klaus Ogerman, got to work with him really closely as he was, he'd already written it. Right. But yeah. he wanted Tommy LaPuma's great friend of mine, great producer, right. called me in to play electric wind instrument to see if that, he'd written it for Miles, but Miles contractually couldn't play that. He couldn't get him to, to play that record. Mm-hmm. He was still under contract to Sony. This was in the 80s. So I got to come in and play all the melodies, and, and it didn't work on an electric wind instrument for, for Klaus, but I, he said, get your tenor out. So I played it all on tenor, wow. and I got to sit down and look at it. I was on some of the sessions later on. Michael Brecker and Randy Brecker ended up doing the record, but then they used my my uh, melodies as a guide, but I mean, it was all Klaus written. Wow. But what I'm saying is I got to witness firsthand Klaus putting it together. Uh-huh. There was no violins, I believe. It was basses, celli, and viola, alto flutes, French horns. Talk about rich. <laughs> Sometimes when they're playing in their upper register, it's still rich, but there was no, you know, high, uh, thin, tones coming from anybody because he was really a lot of what he did 
and does is mine the really richness mm-hmm. of that kind of orchestration. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. To jump over and talk quickly about um, your 2001 solo release. Uh, I think that's your your only solo release entitled "The Beautiful Struggle." And you know, from a personnel perspective, this this album was sort of a in a, in a small way like a mini Sea Wind reunion, as you had you know you brought Jerry Hay in and Pauline Wilson, but you also had some really other you know some other great players such as Vinnie Caluda, Dave Carpenter on bass. Uh, Bill Reichenbach on the bone, and, and you had Gary Grant also on some additional trumpet parts. And what a great lineup! Same, the same guys show up on a lot of records I'm on. Huh? <laughs> and all of a sudden, I get lucky when they're around. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I sound I sound real lucky. My notes sound better. It's it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, I, you know, there's no, you know, guys guys have said 
uh, this is a little tangential, but not really, have said, use the same, you know, you play with the same guys all the time. You guys got a click or whatever. I said, you know, when you when you go to music school with some guy and you've been playing with him for 40 years, <laughs> it's it's like... <laughs> it's kind of hard to dump him. shorthand. I mean, it's so far beyond <laughs> a friendship thing. Right. I, I wouldn't, you know, I got, Sony gave me the opportunity to basically make any kind of record I wanted. I mean, I knew there were going to be a couple of standards on this record, mm-hmm. and I was going to get to write some stuff for it. Basically, it was anything I wanted it to be. Yeah. And I was going to go in there with the people, you know, I knew that I wasn't going to make a lot of records like this. Yeah. So I took, you know, my favorite drummer is Vinnie Cagliuta right now. Oh, at that time, 2001, and Dave Carpenter was my favorite bass player. So <laughs> yep. I went in and... and Played trio with them, and then then I put my saxophone on top of it, and then on a couple of things brought in Bill to do, uh, you know, trombone and low brass stuff, and Jerry and Chuck Finley and mm-hmm. Gary Grant yeah. to, to do the, the trumpet thing. And Pauline, I love the way Pauline sings. So it was, yep. it just just fell in place that these are the people I, I wanted to be on my my one expression of me as a leader. It's never a big deal to me to be the leader of anything. Yeah, right. you know, I'd rather be a small part of the greatest ensemble than be the leader of something not so great. Yeah. It's always yes. been my approach. So, uh, let, me, let me play with the best people. I don't care what instrument I'm playing. I don't even care if I get a solo. I don't care. You know, I just want to yeah. be around great music You're and right. great musicians. And uh, that. That it doesn't mean that I don't have an ego. It means um, that always leads to the best musical output, right. and it it also always leads to me getting to express myself, yep. Even, yep. even if it doesn't appear that you know that uh, oh I'm not getting you know three solos on this record or whatever. <laughs> um, it's not it's not what it's about for me. I don't have to you know I don't have to play a solo every night. I don't right. have to 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 be up in front of the stage, you know, I, I love playing with great singers. I mean, I love playing with Al Jarreau. Yeah. I love uh, being able to express myself in in staying in the background. I mean, that's just a part of who I am. I, yeah. it, it was really fun to do that record. And um, well, this this I, rec- I do plan on doing another one too. So oh, yeah. good. That's good news. <laughs> and, and we'll it, see what how long it takes me and what what form it takes. But uh, <laughs> I have. I've got some songs and some some ideas that, that uh, are underway. So very cool. Well, you had on this album that now going back to the 2001 release, the uh, the beautiful struggle. You had you know a wonderful mix of original compositions on this one, as well as some classics such as you know Thelonious Monk's Round Midnight, and you know this this mix of originals and classics are you know they're arranged really nicely, and the entire I felt that the entire album was, was very mm-hmm. cohesive. You know, even mixing the you know the the classics with your originals. And tell me about your approach and song selection for this album. How did you go about that? Yeah, it's, it, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, I certainly did want it to be cohesive, and like I said, Sony Japan was very, very gracious. They came to me and said, We're, "We've got this, uh, this, this newer technology, which was their their uh, super recording system, super high end one. It's called One Bit. Uh, it, it never totally caught on, although a lot of stuff's been recorded on it, and Sony has a big catalog." And that, that's what they wanted to, 
showcase. They originally wanted me to do it all live, direct to that, to really? basically two-track, because that's all they had at the time. And okay. I said, I'm not really interested in doing that because I'll have to commit to one instrument. Right. I, I don't want to do that. I want to I wanna show that another way of playing jazz, and it's not that nobody's done it, is to put the trio down and then leave space for the solos and still play vibrant like like you're playing like you're there in the room and right. the musicians have called me and said they they actually one of my favorite piano players Otmaro Ruiz said he was he really loved the way I was able to make it sound like the quartet recorded it doesn't mm-hmm. sound really over overdubbed it's uh yeah I took a lot of care to do that so I had told Sony my concept was to do some jazz classics with my originals yeah. And I wasn't. I had a few songs that um, this love lost from that that were kind of could fit in there with with classic jazz comp- compositions and with with the standards. And I was going to take them, you know, see how far out I could take them or or my own direction. I mean, inner urge didn't change a whole lot because yeah. uh, I actually didn't have enough time to really. Totally rethink it. I, today, I would, I would, <laughs> I would do more with that one. Uh-huh. But you know, around midnight's a pretty. I took took some elements of several arrangements. There's a Herbie Hancock arrangement. I even credited Herbie, which is I, I should have because some of his voicings and some of his chord substitutions are I, I just lifted because they were so great. Yeah. Um, I just and I thought about. You know, there's Afro-Cuban stuff and there's straight-ahead jazz. It's just me. It's like this is the best me of 2001 that I could come up with and the best songs I had. I mean, that's always the way I approach recording. Yeah. Um, certainly wasn't done for the radio. I wasn't thinking mm-hmm. about markets. It was um, the best musical record combination of, of what I had what I had lived up to that point, and mm-hmm. I yeah. practiced a couple of time, a couple hours a day on piano, getting my 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 chops strong, and and practiced on tenor for a couple hours a day yeah. up to that. So, it, it you know I'm pretty proud of that effort. Um, all things being said, you know, there's things I would change, like there is on every record, but yeah. pretty happy with that one, and and. Uh, Again, Sony was was very gracious, and in fact, I did a tour of Japan um, in 2003 behind that record with yeah. Dave Carpenter and Larry Koontz on guitar and Pauline yeah, and Aro Safati on drums. Well, great little trip. The album itself was only released in Japan, right? Correct. Yeah, Sony Japan didn't release internationally. Um, didn't make a lot of waves. It did. did did well, you know. Did did I think they made their money back, and uh, they they own that master. Yeah. Uh, I sold that master to them, so yeah. it's just one of those things that that uh, I didn't have to go scrape around for the money. They paid me nicely. I was able to pay everybody well. I didn't have to ask, beg people to come and play, <laughs> which I don't do, and. Um, it, it worked out pretty good. I wish I owned the master. Maybe one of these days I'll buy it back from them. Yeah, I was curious if it might ever be released in the in the states or like a digital download on iTunes or something like that. You know, I haven't had a discussion with Sony lately about it. Even yeah. though Sony Japan put out the Sea Wind record last year, right? Um, reunion, right, right, right. new new record. Um, it's it's 
it's one of those things that you that you don't know. You just I think they keep that and they put it on TV shows or movies or the kind of <laughs> things that they want to use it for. It's in their catalog that demonstrates their one bit system and um, that's their their proprietary you know high end system. Right. And um, you know they sent me a player, which was very nice. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> they've been they've been really good to me. I I hope that that record was going to stay around for a long time, and sure. I I think there'll be another life to it at some point. Maybe when I do another one, I'll be able to get both of them. And uh, you know I, I'm vowing to own own the next one. Yeah, know, sure. make it work myself. You know, easier said than done. When you're like I went into Capitol Records, you know, to record with my favorite engineer of all time tommy vacari and uh that's a lot of what we recorded that to to tape two mm-hmm. inch tape so really? those tracks a lot of it is why that sounds so rich <laughs> it was done to tape i still oh. love the sound of tape so yeah you know that that brings to mind a question that i had for you and you know even though i, I actually own a recording studio um we do mostly post-production but i you know obviously i work in the digital realm i've got pro tools uh-huh. and, you know and but many when, when we speak about music you know many of my favorite recordings were, were tracked you know uh was analog you know on tape and you know i just i i just like i just prefer that sound and in thinking back to sea wind's first album okay talking about sea wind now which was recorded you know back in this in like i think it was 76 right to this Correct. this new reunion cd that you just put out that you just mentioned in 2009 mm-hmm. you've worked through various recording technologies over the course of the past 34 <laughs> years and you know do you prefer i mean just thinking about everything you've you know all the technology that's come and gone in the, that time period do you prefer tracking digitally now as opposed to like working analog then and and sonically speaking which do you prefer wow straight up sonically if if all things were considered mm-hmm. i would still rather cut with tape, yeah, I would rather yep. cut cut with tape mm-hmm. and edit edit in um, edit digitally, right? Edit digitally, yeah. That yeah. would be my 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 first uh, call. And in fact, you know, there's this. I mean, it's not cheap, but there's this box that you can. I have a two track tape. You know, my my Atari machine. Mm-hmm. I'm yep. you know mostly an overdub machine here. Um, just sitting there that you can you can use the electronics. You know of this thing you can you can you can use one reel of tape and you're just running through the electronics sure okay and and you're you're actually getting tape saturation on it but you're not recording to tape you're just running it through it it allows oh, you right, to, right. to actually it's it's not the digital version of tape saturation it's the real thing right but but as my new engineer newer Steve Sykes who did the, the Oh yeah, see one thing. Who's a great engineer said sure. we've spent all this time, basically, to get the analog sound out of digital. <laughs> the last thing I want to do is put analog circuitry back into it. So yeah. you know, it's it's come so far now, and we've worked really hard now with great Mike Freeze, and I, I always use you know Neve or. Or, or comparable mic freeze to put Tubes. everything through, especially, yeah. well, anything. I just, mm-hmm. I'm still a big believer in warming it up as much as possible, right. even right. though the picture gets digitized. Um, I think we're getting a lot better. Sure. It's, it's, the, it's that the final source comes down to a 16-bit 44.1. Exactly. And, and you can't get away with that. You're still, though, got a lot of more overtones on there when you put them, when you put them on correctly and... And warm stuff up. I mean, that's my 
my biggest problem is a is a digital product all the way down the line yeah. with not very much care taken to make it sound mm-hmm. more if that's what you want that's yeah. what I'm, we're talking about right real instruments here i'm not talking about a 9-inch nail record correct yeah, <laughs> right, right right which is you know great which is fine in its realm but i'm talking about kind of music that that's that's you know acoustic based it's uh, it's getting pretty darn good. Mm-hmm. Finally, I will say I, I'm still miffed at at, uh, and I don't I don't buy downloads unless I'm just listening for a project to you know right. to hear what somebody wants me to to hear to emulate or whatever. I still buy CDs because I, I want to hear the the product the way it was meant to be. Right. I, I don't I don't I'm still like a little purist, especially if it's a jazz record. I'm not going to buy the, yeah. the download. You know, sure, unless, exactly. Unless I just want to hear an MP3 to hear what the music's about, I'm not. I'm not like a, a audiophile purist, but I. Yeah. But I do think we've certainly lost a lot over. Over. I mean, stuff doesn't sound <laughs> way greater than it used to in general, <laughs> and a lot of it doesn't sound near as good as a lot of the classic records that from the day. You know, and I, I mean, I don't want to go back to vinyl. I yeah. Don't, but there's a lot of great stuff about it too. Sure, right. I, guess, right. I guess I'm torn. Is 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 the answer? Yeah, I'm kind of caught caught between, you know, the stuff seemed to happen pretty fast, man. From cassette to, yep. I mean, I had DAT tapes. I've discussed yeah. DAT machines, and I got I got I got a bunch of technology here still that I <laughs> that I haven't gotten rid of. We were just talking a couple of seconds ago of how many thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of of tapes, dat machines, oh, and whatever that we've got imagine? two reels, reel to reels. I mean, it's just like everything that you've gotten. You think, and here we are in a digital age now, where you're right. It's sort of like a fast food mentality. If if you know how to use the tool. You know, I think you can be successful, but like you said, there's something about that the quality, the warmth of the analog. I mean, uh, I'm I'm stuck. Rick was just going to mention a couple minutes ago that I'm stuck <laughs> on vinyls. I really am, and uh, you know, even with my girls, you know, they're ones in college and the other ones a teenager. We still get, we still sit down and uh, uh, just the other night we put uh, Algero's Algero uh, the This Time album on, and we and oh, she was just, and it was just beautiful as ever, just like you're talking about. It's it's just that. Just nice, 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 you know? And that's yeah, what I really I, like. I'm almost afraid to get my vinyl out. <laughs> I, I got to tell you, because I, if I like it, what am I going to do? Yeah. <laughs> like, how am I going to make well, that, they're, they're, that music in, in yeah. today's world where they're talking about, I'm talking about a new Al Jarreau record coming up, which I, I'm going to produce. Cool, I cool. think Rod Temperton's writing some nice. songs right now. Nice. Very nice. That, that they're talking about it some of these little record companies are saying there won't be any more CDs in mm-hmm. a year or two. Mm-hmm. I, it's even hard to... It, it'll only be downloads? I don't uh, know. No, I, I don't, don't think they'll completely go away. It's like vinyl's never really gone away. No, As a matter of fact, vinyl's making a pushback. You're it starting sure to see is. some yeah. albums pressed and in Best Buy now. So yep, I know right. that, and, I, and I, I hope it keeps coming back, and I, I don't yeah. believe that either yet. Certainly not in five or eight years. No. I can't yeah. even... But they 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 believe it. The people that are selling them are are believing it, which is a little yeah. unnerving when you're going. You got to hurry up and make a product so that it'll come out on an actual CD, sure. so you can sell it all together at once instead of individual tracks. Yeah. I mean, the idea of not having a whole product come out at once. Yeah. I understand people's listening habits, and I understand sure. the attention right. span is is different, but 
that's really anathema to our, any artistic vision. I mean, it's not widgets we're making, and it's not, even though the business people need to do that, and, and we need the business people, it's, there's got to be, there's got to be some better way to get your artistic vision yeah, across right, than just yeah. one bit at a time. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, you know, speaking of Al Jarreau, I was really, me and Rick were nice, uh, very pleased to, to uh, hear the track He Loves You, which actually brought in the amazing uh, Al Jarreau on, on this reunion CD. It was very nice. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Al, Al insisted. He's a really huge, honest-to-God um, Seawind fan, and he insisted on being on that record. That's and, cool. <laughs> Jerry wasn't uh, involved in this reunion. He was having throat problems. He's not really playing very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, he Al, this was a perfect solution to have Al come in and sing the solo where Jerry had played this classic flugelhorn solo. A lot oh. of musicians have transcribed that. I've found out since there's several transcriptions of uh, off our first record by the way he yeah, loves yeah. you and uh al did a great job i yeah. mean that's a i think three takes and no punching on the on the one thing he did he just came in and wow. put his stamp on it and so I, i'm very grateful to have had this 33 year yeah. relationship with al yeah, yeah. that's neat Still stuff continuing that's good Get 
we've talked about these two CDs, the Reunion CD and, of course, your your CD. We know that your uh, Beautiful Struggle CD is difficult to find. I've seen it on Amazon for like 60 bucks. I know. So, so it's I know, not that- people ask me and I go, you know, I, there's nothing I can do because I yeah. don't own it. Right. Right. I, can't, exactly. I can't even, even if I wanted to, I can't sell, you know, knockoffs. I can't do anything because yeah, right. it would be unethical and I don't, I don't believe in that. So yeah. I, I, you're kind of at the mercy. I'm hoping yeah. I'll be able to get it released here in the U.S. under some, some something on my own label, but I'm going to have to look into that to buy it back. So, yeah. I, you know, I, I've actually given out a few of <laughs> Sony probably won't. I, they're not selling it actively, but I, I still don't feel right about charging anything for it. So I've yeah. given some copies out to people just, yeah. just to hear the music. Um, so hopefully that will get at some point will will change mm-hmm. but reunion is available at seawindjazz.com right okay now. great right that that's unfortunately there's a japanese mix from sony japan that's not very good okay um, really it, it it's yeah uh, it's a long story but the the short of it is time and money yeah. got really crunched and it got out of our hands there oh. and the Japanese version is not, is not Steve Sykes mixed. Wow, so God. it's not very good. That's and too bad. Mastering isn't good. There's some distortion on it. The version we we paid for and did is available at seawindjazz.com, and okay. it's um, highest quality. Steve, uh, Doug Sachs mastered it. Uh, Sykes mixed it, and I'm very proud of that. And uh, it's. You may see that on a major label here soon. We're we're under underway okay. to, um, to to license that because, like I said, that we just licensed it to to Japan. That's all they the, the they just have a three year license, which is coming up. I believe it's going to be another year, and that'll be over. So anyway, we're that doesn't preclude us from licensing it to the rest of the world. So cool. we're in talks right now, but but you can get it. We will send that to you. Physically, it's not on iTunes because we don't want to give that right away yet. Yeah. Um, but we will send you the physical product if you go to seawindjazz.com. Well, hey, Larry, thanks for spending so much time with us. I, we Absolutely. Re- Eddie and I really enjoyed this conversation. Hey, and, and, uh, we, we, my we really pleasure, guys. Yeah. Really, yeah. really great to talk to you. And keep up the great work. Thanks. other people and musicians know about uh, some of the... Some of the littler guys like me, some of the guys behind the <laughs> scenes that, that you don't see every day. So I, I sure appreciate your work, you guys, and well, what you do. Well, our audience is definitely going to enjoy this. So thank you so much again uh, uh, for being with us, and uh, we'll we'll keep in touch, okay? Okay, Eddie and Rick. Thank you, guys. All right, take care. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Special thanks to Larry Williams for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Also, very special thanks to Inside Music Cast correspondents Scott Gross, Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Max Zape, and Uwe Reif. And please visit our new website at InsideMusicCast.com, where you can join us for great music conversation in our forum, catch up on all of our past interviews in the archive section, read the Inside Opinion blog, and check out bonus content that we'll be posting often. Find us on InsideMusicCast.com or on Facebook and MySpace. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside MusicCast. Music Cast.